Hello. I'm Marcia Cantarella. I'm assistant dean of the college, and um, I am delighted to be here and to see so many of you here for what I think is going to be a very exciting evening. Um, many of you, many speak of the digital divide as a demarcation determining who will be among the haves and the have-nots in our increasingly technologically dependent society. Bob Moses with great prescience, has for over 20 years been fighting on the front line of that divide. He comes to us today, and we're honored to have him, to share his perspectives on how we have come to our current situation of virtual math illiteracy among low-income youth and how we can extricate ourselves from that situation. Robert P. Moses was born and raised in Harlem. His parents placed great value on education, and Bob excelled in school. He applied to and was accepted at New York City's prestigious Stuyvesant High School. Upon graduation, he went on to Hamilton College in upstate New York, where he was one of only three black students in his class. In the 60s, Bob joined the Civil Rights Movement and spent four years in efforts to organize black voters in Mississippi for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, otherwise known as SNCC. Drafted by the Army in 1967, he decided not to serve and moved to Canada, where he met his current wife, Janet, who's here, who is now a pediatrician with the Health Services Division at MIT. Later, the couple moved to Tanzania, where all four of their children were born. And after President Carter granted amnesty to Vietnam-era draft dodgers in 1977, Moses returned to the United States and completed his doctoral work in philosophy at Harvard. In 1982, Moses was convinced that his eighth-grade daughter was ready to study algebra. But her local school district did not offer the course for students until the ninth grade. However, Moses was allowed to come in and tutor the four students who were ready for advanced study, and the algebra project began. Bob Moses believes that young blacks have no chance of competing in the economic environment of the 21st century unless they first master algebra. The algebra project, now nearly 20 years old, is the subject of his new book, Radical Equations, Math Literacy, and Civil Rights. He began the Algebra Project in 1982 by tutoring his daughter and three of her eighth grade classmates in, at school in Cambridge. A genius award from the MacArthur Foundation provided the seed money to expand the project nationwide. Today, the project has expanded to 28 communities in 10 states and has an annual budget of 2.5 million and teaches algebra to over 10,000 low-income students in the rural south and in inner cities. Bob Moses focuses on a practical method to mathematics problem solving. He uses buses and subway maps to instruct students in calculating distances. He uses African drums, role-playing, and games to make mathematics fun and to give children a strong desire to study. As part of the overall concept of mathematics literacy, Students are required to answer all questions in complete, grammatically correct 
sentences. The program has been a remarkable success. Teachers in the school districts in which the algebra project operates report significant gains in test scores among participating students. Three years after the Algebra Project came to the predominantly black Hart School in Bessemer, Alabama, its children were outscoring students at the city's predominantly white middle-class school on mathematics standardized tests. He is now 66 years old, swims 2,000 yards a day, eats no meat, practices yoga, just ran up the stairs twice with me. I was puffing more than he was. Recently, the state of Mississippi, which had fought him at every turn in the 1960s, honored him with a Robert Moses Day for his work teaching mathematics to poor black students in the state's rural black counties. Bob Moses is, of course, correct. Algebra has become the gatekeeper course in the United States. It determines which students will go to college and which will be doomed to low-paying menial jobs. In the early 1960s, Robert P. Moses, a black man, was the first field operative of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi. In those years, his life was in constant danger. Beaten, shot at, routinely arrested, he persisted in his efforts to organize black voters in the Mississippi Delta. Today, he returns to Mississippi each week from his home in Cambridge, Mass., and he continues to work to advance the interest of black Americans. But this time, his crusade is for math literacy. And today, he brings that crusade to us. I'm honored to welcome Bob Moses. How you doing? So um, I want to uh, thank Dean Cantarella and all the people who got me here. And I need to uh, say a little about the context for what I want to uh, talk to you about. And also, I, I guess I need to check in to see whether you're willing to listen uh, to what I want to talk about. And I teach uh, with the Algebra Project in a high school in Jackson, Mississippi, Lanier High School. And I've been teaching there for the last six years, focused on the first two years of high school math. I followed some middle school students into high school who had taken Algebra One in the eighth grade. But I've... I look and wonder uh, constantly, what am I seeing here in the school? And uh, that forced me to try to look at the history of education for the target population the Algebra Project is dealing with, and um, to see if that history could inform uh, what I see. And, um, at the dinner table tonight, um, one of the people who was there uh, told us about that in Trenton, uh, 60%, even though it's not public um, discussion, 60% of the students don't graduate from high school. 
and there are roughly several hundred, 300 or more high schools in this country, mostly black and Latino, where at least 50% uh, don't graduate from high school. In Jackson, uh, Mississippi, in the public school system there in Jackson, over 50% of the black males don't graduate from high school. And so I've been trying to uh, think out loud in public about, well, what is this? What phenomena is this in America? And so that's what this talk is about. It's sort of the background uh, to what I see and try to think about in the classroom. Now, I read it. It takes a full 45 minutes. Or is that all right? You're going to sit and listen? I mean, if it isn't, then we should do interactive. But if, if this is the talk and that's what it's about, it's all right. Some people are not. <laughs> the presumption of innocence is not just a legal concept. In common sense terms, it depends on that generosity of spirit, which assumes the best, not the worst, of the stranger. On November 23, 1916, in Kemper County, Mississippi, near the Alabama border, Ruby Lee Hopkins and her twin were born out of wedlock to a 15-year-old, Ardell Hopkins. Shortly after Ruby was born, a white plantation manager named Charlie Gaines traveled east from the Mississippi Delta to recruit black people to come to the Hill House Plantation to do sharecropping. He offered George Hopkins, Ruby's grandfather, a promise of prosperity, and in January 1917, when Ruby was six weeks old, George moved the family to Hill House near Clarksdale in the Mississippi Delta to do sharecropping. Ruby and her twin sister, Ruth, spent the next two years at Hill House, where Ruby's mother, Ardell, now 16, met and married another sharecropper at Hill House, George Washington Stamps, better known as GW. But in 1919, Ruby's grandparents quarreled and split up, and Letha Hopkins, Ruby's grandmother, moved Ardell and GW and the twins down to a plantation in Anguilla, near the southern part of the Mississippi Delta. But in 1922, when Ruby was five, the Mississippi River flooded the plantation, and the owner had his sharecroppers moved to another of his plantations called Tallwood, which was outside of Clarksdale on a rural path called New Africa Road because so many black sharecroppers lived there. But in 1924, when Ruby was seven, her grandmother, Letha Hopkins, died. And after the settle, Ardell and G.W. moved to another plantation on New Africa Road because they thought they could make more money. Together they made the crops of 1925 and 1926, but in 1926, G.W. ran off with another woman, leaving Ardell alone with Ruth and the baby. When Kingman Brewster died in 1988, it fell to Sam Chauncey to figure out how Brewster should be buried in the Grove Street Cemetery where all presidents of Yale rest. Sam designed a site that was simple, tasteful, and modest. 
On a low, unadorned black marble wall surrounding the grave, Sam had craftsmen chisel something Brewster spoke and wrote about, a concise reflection on the complex interplay between the rule of law, the discipline of spirit, and the promise of opportunity in America. The presumption of innocence is not just a legal concept. In common sense terms, it depends on that generosity of spirit which assumes the best, not the worst, of the stranger. In 1927, the Mississippi River flooded. On a Thursday in April, a certain Major Lee wired General Jadwin, head of the Corps of Engineers, levee broke at Ferry Landing Mounds, Mississippi. Crevice will overflow entire Mississippi Delta. A wall of water, three quarters of a mile across and more than 100 feet high, raged onto the delta and cut a 100-foot deep channel a half mile wide that ran for one solid mile into the delta. Water poured all day long through the crevice and in 10 days, one million acres of delta land stood 10 feet deep in water. G.W. slipped back to his family the same year he slipped away. But Ardell, now 25, couldn't forgive him, and after the crop of 1926, she slipped off to live with her sister, Sietris, one of her sisters on an island in the middle of Moon Lake. Ruby, now 11 years old, was safe on the island in 1927 when the crevice broke 12 miles north of Greenville at Ferry Landing in Mounds, Mississippi, and water 10 feet deep flooded an area of the delta larger than the state of Connecticut. In 1841, a 20-year-old, Charles Percy, abandoned an Alabama plantation worth a quarter of a million dollars, loaded family and furniture, animals and slaves onto barges and flatboats, traveled the Tennessee River to the Ohio, the Ohio to the Mississippi, and floated 200 miles down the Mississippi to a landing near Greenville, just an outpost then on the edge of the Delta, just south of the ferry landing where that crevice was to overflow. In those days, the delta was wild and the river kept it so. A furious, rapid, desolating torrent loaded with alluvial soil, sweeping whole forests in its path, the river splayed itself sideways across the delta into its tributaries, the Sunflower, the Tallahatchie, the Yalabusha, and the Deer Creek, knifing its way through dense forests where horse and rider could not penetrate, where black panthers, nearly as large as young calves, basked in the cane breaks. The Mississippi pulsed through America, draining soil from 31 states. Its drainage basin stretched from North Carolina to New Mexico, from New York State to Montana. The river pulsed like the central artery of its American heartland and for thousands of years washed down from the vastness of its continent a topsoil dense with nutrients, a topsoil unrivaled by any in the world. The river deposited gold in its delta, gold that was not in the earth but was the earth, topsoil measured by the tens of feet rather than the halves of inches. Charles Percy, 
floated down the river looking to mine its gold, but to do that required separating the topsoil from the river that created it, and the river did not flow quiet into that fateful separation. It raged for a whole century. It battled four generations of Percy's and made them pay what they had not bargained for. No respect of persons, the river did not spare the sharecroppers who flocked out of slavery to clear its crop and crop its topsoil, and it sucked humanity from the conscripted army of freed slaves struggling to lock it up behind a mountain of its own dirt. In 1927, Ruby's mother got married again. But when her new husband turned so jealous that he made her stand in the doorway of their shack so he could keep an eye on her while he was plowing, Ardell left the twins with an elderly minister and slipped off to find a new life. Ardell took up housekeeping with a new man in the nearby town of Lula and sent for the twins. Ruby was baptized in Moon Lake in 1928 when she was 12 years old, but shortly thereafter she was sent to live with her grandfather. George Hopkins, who was remarried and sharecropping on a plantation in Belene, northeast of Clarksdale. Ruby helped chop and pick the cotton crop of 1929. Charles Percy died just 10 years after landing on the edge of the Delta, and his brother, W.A. Percy, a Princeton graduate with a law degree from the University of Virginia, took charge of family affairs. This Percy understood power. He had opposed secession, but he became the gray eagle of a regiment of Confederate volunteers he organized. At war's end, he came home to desolation, a wilderness and a waste. Attending first to the river, he reorganized the levee system in 1865. Turning next to transportation, he helped organize railroads, and in the 1870s, the Illinois Central Railroad deep in debt and gambling on the levees, invested all it had in a railroad line from Chicago to New Orleans. When the levees held, railroad traffic jumped 500% in three years and its profits soared. Meanwhile, the Gray Eagle helped craft the state's tax and land policies to tie the railroads to the black gold the river had created. During the economic chaos accompanying Reconstruction, 2,365,214 acres, totaling more than half the entire delta, had been forfeited to the state for back taxes. In December 1881, Percy, the Gray Eagle, pushed the state to sell 774,000 acres of the delta to a railroad that had not laid a single mile of track and did not own a single locomotive the Yazoo and Mississippi Valley Railroad, the Y and MV, the yellow dog of the blues songs that captured the color and tragedy of its trains. A few weeks later, he pushed the state again, this time to sell 706,000 acres of Delta land for $2,500 in cash. Title to this land ended with the Southern Railroad, controlled by J.P. Morgan, it was the age of robber barons and great Wall Street capitalists who had created vast fortunes and now owned the land that had been washed down the country and stolen from its river. They intended to use it to multiply wealth, 
and to do so, they needed a small army of cheap labor. When Ruby finished with the crop of 1929, the year of the Great Panic Crash, she went back to live with her mother. By 1930, Ardell had married again to a man named Sidney Burns. But in August, she took sick. Her body swelled up, and she stayed in bed for three months before she died at the age of 30 of hypertension, the same disease that had taken Ruby's grandmother. Ruby, Ruth, and Sidney Burns finished making the cotton crop of 1930, and then the twins started moving again. After the war about slavery, Mississippi and other southern states tried to address their need for labor with the Black Codes, legislation to reestablish a form of slavery. In response, Congress instituted radical reconstruction and erected buffers between the freed slaves and their former owners. The Gray Eagle accepted the new order and spelled out its economic parameters. Planters had land, but no cash. Blacks had labor, but no land. Percy, the Gray Eagle, proposed sharecropping. When the twins started moving again in 1930, they went first to an aunt's place on another plantation, then back to their grandfather's. But in those years of the panic crash, George Hopkins always seemed to come out behind at the settle. After the settle of 1931, he owed money and decided to slip off. But the, the planter got wind of his plans and kicked him off. Ruby, shoeless, walked bare feet 10 miles down the road to an aunt's house and asked to be taken in. When George reestablished himself on another plantation, Ruby moved back with him. But when she and her step-grandmother had a quarrel and exchanged blows, Ruby left to stay with some cousins. For the crop of 1933, Ruby, now 16, was back with her grandfather on the plantation of one Tom Weir. The Gray Eagle died in 1888, and his son, Leroy Percy, took control. A graduate like his father and grandfather before him of Virginia Law School, admitted to the bar at the age of 21, attorney at age 24 for the newly organized levy board of the Northern Delta, Leroy had a clear conception of the society he intended to build. It would have rich and poor and little middle. Its elite would take care of its working poor. Leroy had not wished to rely solely on a black labor force, the South, he warned, must not be dependent for its prosperity upon the Negro. There is not enough of him, and what there is is not good enough. But of the more than 15 million immigrants entering the United States from Europe between 1892 and 1915, only a few thousand ventured to Mississippi, and most of those were Italians Leroy recruited in a failed experiment that became an international embarrassment. Nor was there much room in Leroy's Delta for enterprising poor whites to run small farms or manufacturing establishments. So the Charlie Gaines of the Delta plantations recruited the George Hopkins of the Mississippi Hill Country to come to the Delta to do sharecropping. Leroy did not get his wish. Freed slaves would be his only sharecroppers. Shortly after they settled on the plantation of Tom Weir, 
George and Ruby were called into Tom's living room, where he complimented George on Ruby's beauty and maturity and offered a guarantee to clear money every settle. So George slipped off the plantation that very night. For the crop of 1934, Ruby had moved into an extended family group with her twin sister Ruth and her aunt Sietris, both of whom had just married and were sharecropping on New Africa Road. After the settle of 34, Ruby went to spend Christmas with her grandfather on the South Plantation near the town of Marks. When a three-day rain flooded the sharecropper cabins, she camped out on a hill. Then when W.D., the son of another sharecropper family, asked her to marry him, she did. They got married on February 2nd, 1935. Ruby was 18 and wanted to be grown. In 1912, the New York Times reported that to prevent an overflow of the levy, several hundred black convict levy workers were ordered to compact themselves on the top of the levy for one and a half hours until sandbags arrived. Leroy Percy had not thought that solution brilliant. To Leroy, sharecroppers were economic units competing with people, not with sandbags. But now, a quarter of a century later, the river had taken Leroy's concept and turned it against him. In the first hours of the flood, black and white had risked their lives to save each other, but now a week after the flooding, white women and children had been evacuated, and the 4,000 whites remaining lived on second floors and in offices or hotels in Greenwoodville, used rowboats and motorboats, and peddled goods on boardwalks created from scaffolding. On the other hand, about 5,000 blacks were crowded into warehouses, oil mills, and stores, and up to 13,000 more blacks lived on the levee in an elongated city that snaked more than eight miles, complete with electric lights, pipes for water, barges for latrines. Blacks slept on the wet ground in tents, ate with their fingers, shared the levee with thousands of livestock. The stench was unbearable, Blacks felt betrayed. Leroy Percy had betrayed them. Leroy Percy, a United States senator, a director of a Federal Reserve Bank, a trustee of the Carnegie Foundation, a board member of J.P. Morgan Southern Railroad, a director of the Rockefeller Foundation, an outside attorney for the Illinois Central Railroad, Leroy Percy was the most powerful man in the Delta, perhaps the most powerful man along the length of the river. But Leroy could not command the river, and now writhing like a snake down the country's spine, the river pursued its revenge. Those freed slaves who became sandbags on its levees became niggers in its Delta levee camps. The way these levee niggers shoot one another is something fearful. One got shot in a crap game last night, it didn't even stop the game. If one of the white foremen shoots a couple of niggers on the works, the work is not stopped. The long arm of the law does not reach here. And those Percy's, they were forced to choose between blacks as people or blacks as property. Blacks were no more to be evacuated than the sandbags they had limited. Sam Chauncey's father, Henry Chauncey, graduated from Groton in 1923. In the 1920s, 
the Peabody's and the Atchison's, the Alsop's and the Bundy's, the Harriman's, the Whitney's, the Morgan's and the Roosevelt's all sent their sons to Groton and on to Harvard and out to run America and manage its affairs. In 1927, Henry Chauncey graduated from Harvard and took a job there in 1929 as an assistant dean. But that year, the stock market crash made the leadership of the country look inept. And then four years later, in 1933, while the country was still reeling from the effects of what sharecroppers labeled the panic crash, the Harvard Corporation changed the nature of the leadership at Harvard and selected James Bryan Conant, a chemistry professor, to become its president. And so put in place the players, Conant and Chauncey, who introduced the questions Kingman Brewster pondered would ponder 30 years later, how should opportunity be distributed in America and how should America select its elite to manage the country and run its affairs. In 1933, Harvard students were graduates of prep schools from New York and New England, and at a time when a quarter of the American workforce was unemployed and desperate, these rich young men lived in private apartments attended by butlers and maids in a district called the Gold Coast, went to debutante balls in Boston, did not customarily attend classes, and enrolled briefly in special tutoring schools at the end of each semester so they would be able to pass their exams. So in 1933, Conant called in Henry Chauncey and asked his help in setting up the first Harvard National Scholarships for public school students. Henry Chauncey now had a problem. How could Harvard tell which high school seniors in all the vastness of public education in America were the most likely to perform brilliantly at Harvard? Ruby and her new husband, W.D., made the crops of 35 and 36 on the self-plantation. But in 37, W.D.'s father acquired 40 acres in the woods through President Roosevelt's Farm Security Administration, which lent sharecroppers money to buy land. The Daniels cleared the land by hand, and Ruby and W.D. helped make the crop of 37. But when the rains came, the land flooded with snakes as well as water, and Ruby knew she should move to town. Then in 1938, finally she talked W.D. into taking a job with the W.P.A., President Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration for $1 a day, and after the crop of 38, Ruby and W.D. moved into Clarksdale. Her sharecropper days were over. James Bryan Conant didn't like achievement tests because he thought they favored rich boys whose parents could buy them top-flight high school instruction, so he told Chauncey to use the SAT the aptitude test developed by Carl Brigham as the means for selecting Harvard's <coughs> national scholars. Brigham started out assisting the administration of IQ tests to American soldiers in World War I. Then he came to Princeton, and he wrote a book in 1924, A Study of American Intelligence. And he said, there are three distinct white races in Europe in descending order of intelligence, Nordic, Alpine, and Mediterranean. The IQ tests reflect ironclad natural laws, 
officers scored higher than enlisted men, the native-born scored higher than the foreign-born, less recent immigrants scored higher than more recent immigrants, and whites scored higher than Negroes. Our figures would rather tend to disprove the popular belief that the Jew is highly intelligent. By June of 1926, Brigham transferred the Army IQ test into the SAT. And in 1934, he renounced his concept that the SAT measured native intelligence. He said, the native intelligence hypothesis is dead. The test scores very definitely are composite, including schooling, family background, familiarity with English, and everything else relevant and irrelevant. I hope, no, I hope nobody believes now that such tests measure native intelligence. James Bryant Conant did. When Ruby and W.D. moved to Clarksdale in 1938, she got a job as a cook and housekeeper for a white lady at $2.50 a week. Ruby got by. She could buy salt, pork, or beans, or black-eyed peas for five cents a pound. She could make a batch of biscuits with a nickel's worth of flour. She could go out on the trucks and pick cotton on Saturdays if she needed to. In 1941, W.D. was drafted into the Army. While he was gone, Ruby fell in love with Kermit Butler, who drove an ambulance for the Century Funeral Home. Kermit was married, but able to buy Ruby dresses. In love with Kermit, Ruby decided to have his babies. George in 42, named for a grandfather, and Kermit in 43. She got a job as a waitress in a cafe at the intersection of highways 49 and 61. She worked from 7 to 7, but she made $12.50 a week. She wrote to W.D. explaining the situation, and when W.D. came home on leave, they divorced. The Hobson Plantation paid more than the other places for day laborers, $2 for 100 pounds of cotton. And when Newby needed extra money on those Saturdays, she would get up early, make her way to the corner of 4th and Issaquina, and wait to be trucked to the Hobson place just outside of Clarksdale. Was she there on October 2nd, 1944, when a crowd of people gathered, eyes riveted on eight bright red machines moving up and down a field of cotton? Richard Hobson ran the plantation office, and in April of 1944, Richard had sent a registered letter to the local Cotton Industry Association. I am confident that you are aware of the acute shortage of labor which now exists in the Delta and of the serious racial problem which confronts us at this time and which may become more serious as time passes. I strongly advocate the farmers of the Mississippi Delta changing as rapidly as possible from the old sharecropping system of farming to complete mechanized farming. Mechanized farming will require only a fraction of the amount of labor which is required by the sharecrop system, which would automatically make our racial problem easier to handle. David Cohn, a Delta literary lawyer writing in 1947, two years later, tried in vain to focus America's attention on its sharecropping strangers. The coming problem of agricultural displacement in the Delta and the whole South is of huge proportions and must concern the entire nation. 
The country is upon the brink of a process of change as great as any that has occurred since the Industrial Revolution. Five million blacks will be removed from the land within the next few years. They must go somewhere, but where? They must do something, but what? They must be housed, but how? By 1945, Ruby's twin sister died at the age of 28, and Sietris, Ruby's aunt, was living in Chicago. Figuring that Kermit was never going to leave his wife, Ruby decided to join Sietris in Chicago. Two former neighbors and friends of Ruby were living in Memphis, A.C. and Francis Clark, and Francis had long implored Ruby to give her one of her boys. Ruby thought it would be too difficult to get established in Chicago with both Kermit and George, so she took them both to Memphis, left Kermit with Francis and A.C., and bought an $11 ticket for the midnight train to Chicago. Ruby moved in with Sietris at 3666 Indiana Avenue in the heart of Chicago's Black Belt in a kitchenette apartment with two rooms, an icebox, and a hot plate. They shared a common bathroom with the residents of the other five such apartments on her floor. Ruby thought it was wonderful. By 1937, all the Ivy League universities used the SAT to select scholarship students, and Conant proposed that a new national testing agency be created to operate such tests and research new ones. But Carl Brigham opposed the idea. Brigham argued in public and in private that the very creation of powerful machinery to do more widely those things that are now being done badly will stifle research, discourage new developments, and establish existing methods and even existing tests as the correct ones. Then on January 24, 1943, at the age of 52, Carl Brigham died. Conan's roadblock was removed. A few months after Brigham's death, Conan published in the Atlantic Monthly, Wanted American Radicals. In the middle of World War II, with communism perceived as a threat to American capitalism, Conan called for equality of opportunity, not equality of rewards. In 1933, Conan had pushed for intellectual promise and academic achievement as the basis for sorting America's students and selecting its elite. Now, in 1943, he pushed for education to be also the official repository of opportunity in America. That was a new idea, not just for Conant, but also for this country. Before World War II, opportunity in America came outside of school and college in informal ways. Before World War II, public schools, state universities, land-grant colleges set the stage for economic opportunity. They did not distribute it. What Conant was proposing was to take a deep-seated wish from the history of the world, the dream of establishing governing elites selected on the basis of merit, not parentage, Plato's guardians, the Chinese mandarins, Jefferson's natural aristocrats, and wed that idea to a deep-seated ideal in American culture, opportunity for everyone. This odd couple were to be established in the country's vast decentralized network of universities, colleges, and schools. In 1947, the Educational Testing Service, ETS, was chartered 
with Henry Chauncey as president and James Bryant Conant as chairman of the board. ETS was to be part of the machinery to distribute opportunity across the country. But lurking in this machinery were America's sharecropper schools, linked to America's evolving perceptions of Africans as people, members of a human family. Opportunity for every person did not mean opportunity for every African. A slave counted as three-fifths of a person, enough to balance the regional votes in the Electoral College and the House of Representatives. Sharecroppers were perhaps seven-tenths of one. But Africans in America were about to rise up to claim the opportunity to also be counted as Americans, to insist that each sharecropping ruby be counted as one true American person. This count challenges America's educational machinery and mocks America's generosity of spirit. Ruby made out just fine at Sietra's place. The rent was only $10 a week, people were friendly, and there was always someone around to look after George when she was out. Sietra's got Ruby a job at the Montgomery Ward building doing janitorial work, making over $40 a week. Ruby worked there for a little more than a year. Then Kermit Butler called, said his wife died, and if Ruby moved back to Clarksdale, he would marry her. She did. They did. It didn't work. Kermit treated Ruby like he had treated his first wife and ran around with other women. At the end of 1948, Ruby took the train back to Chicago, moved back in with Sietris, and got back her old job at Montgomery Ward. Then she got a job at a laundry that paid 75 cents an hour. There she met Alvin Weeks from the Delta, got involved, and in January 7, 1950, gave birth to Larry, her third son. But Alvin married another woman, and soon she and Sietris moved to a six-room apartment on 47th Street in a poor but decent neighborhood where they gave weekend house parties to help pay the rent. Harold Brown, who had been Ruby's teenage sweetheart in 1934 before she met W.D., came to these, and they started going together. In 1952, her fourth son, Terrell, was born. Then Francis in Memphis, who was looking after Kermit, took sick and had to bring him up to Chicago. But shortly after Terrell's, but shortly after Terrell's first birthday, a family friend from Massillon who had been begging Ruby for a child to raise came to get Terrell and took him to Massillon. Ruby and Sietris had a boarder named Mamie Brown who bought a friend home, a Mississippi sharecropper turned Chicago factory worker who happened to know Ruth, Ruby's sister. His name was Luther Haynes and he and Ruby hit it off. In 1954 they had a son, Johnny. Then in November of that year, Sietris had a stroke and died. Luther moved into the apartment and he and Ruby set up housekeeping. It was 1955. Conant retired as president of Harvard in 1953. He served for 20 years. Four years later, he turned his attention to public schools and discovered America's sharecropper system of education. He published a book, Slums and Suburbs, in June of 1961, in which he recorded one principal's description of his school in a slum. When a residential area composed of large old homes formerly occupied by owners in single-family groups changes economically and socially, 
conditions of general deterioration begin. Absentee owners rent the property by single rooms to large families. Such conditions attract transients who either cannot or will not qualify for supervised low-income housing, the unemployed, the unskilled, and unschooled, and the distressed families whose breadwinners have either just been committed to prisons or have been but recently released from such. The only possession of most of these families most of these families is children. In such an environment, all forms of evil flourish. The peddling of dope, drunkenness, disease, accidents, truancies, physical, mental, and moral handicaps, sex perversions involving children. In all probability, at least one half of our children will be school dropouts. In our opinion, the children need desperately for desirable developments in addition to good schools, good homes, churches, and communities. But this principle, Conant observes, has a certain generosity of spirit towards his students and ability to see their potential. Conant writes about this. I am quoting from an official report which, in acknowledging the general low achievement of white children in this school, makes the interesting statement that there is no reason to believe that these students as a group are inherently or genetically less capable than average students. But apparently because of some types of experiences in their lives, they have been unable to develop their intellectual skills. The belief expressed in the first part of this sentence can hardly be based on anything firmer than an assumption as to the genetic uniformity of white children whose ancestors have for several generations lived in the United States. Such an assumption, of course, leaves out of account the possibility of a selective process occurring over the generations as some tended to move to one type of occupation and settle in one type of community. However, since I see no way of investigating the role of selective migration, I would be inclined to let the assumption stand unchallenged. Only I would argue strongly that to date we have no evidence to indicate that the assumption should not be broadened to include both white and Negro students. For all the contrary evidence, namely the poor work in school and low scores on tests made by Negroes, is based to a large degree on the performance of children in what are essentially slum schools. During the 1940s, the black population of Chicago increased by 77% from 278,000 to 492,000. In the 1950s, it grew by another 65% to 813,000. At one point, 2,200 black people were moving into Chicago every week. By 1960, Chicago had half a million more black residents than it had in 1940. They had to be housed. Well, sleazy realtors known to sharecroppers as panic peddlers would move in a black family, move a black family into a white neighborhood, materializing violence and mobs. They would then warn white families that they'd better move out before it was too late, thereby obtaining their houses at rock-bottom prices. Then they would rush in new black residents, selling houses on contract, luring blacks with very low down payments, kicking them out when they fell behind on their substantial monthly payments, repossessing the houses, and selling them on contracts to other blacks. 
apartment buildings were cut up into overpriced and under-maintained kitchenettes, like the one Ruby thought wonderful when she moved in with Sietras in 1943. In 1955, Ruby and Luther had another son, Robert, Ruby six in a row. They worked for a while at an awning factory, but that fell through. Then Ruby got a job as a barmaid at the Four Aces at 43rd and Indiana Avenue. Luther worked there part-time at night, while George, now 12, took care of his younger brothers. Next, Ruby and Luther moved into a place on the west side, which was filled completely with sharecroppers arriving daily from Mississippi. On the west side, the black neighborhoods were far too small to hold all the black refugees pouring into the city, and the black schools were faced with the same severe overcrowding. Ben Willis, the superintendent of Chicago schools, put the black schools on double shifts, eight to noon and noon to four, and Larry and Johnny went to school in Willis wagons. Trailers converted into temporary classrooms and installed in the school playgrounds. Following World War II, America wrote rules into its codes for regulating the financing of homes to ensure the ethnic purity of its growing suburban neighborhoods. Rules of residence protected seats of schools. Empty seats in nearby schools were not to be soiled with the children of sharecroppers. Willis wagons became a metaphor for distributing sharecropper education across urban America. Ruby's children went to school half days in Willis wagons. In 1957, Sam Chauncey graduated from Yale and, like his father had done at Harvard some 30 years earlier, became an assistant dean at his alma mater. He decided to take advantage of his new position and dug out his application folder. In the place reserved for the assessment of the candidate by the admissions office, somebody had written just three words, Henry Chauncey's son. In 1963, a young black man in Chicago applied for a job at a Motorola television factory and was turned down on the basis of his score in an IQ test the company had given him. He filed a, a complaint with the Illinois Fair Employment Practices Commission, which ordered Motorola to hire him, raising the issue of quotas. So in the debate on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Senator Lister Hill of Alabama said the Motorola case threw merit and ability out the window, and Senator Fulbright of Arkansas warned that the Motorola case threatened the SAT, and Senator John Tower of Texas observed that college entrance examinations discriminate against deprived and disadvantaged persons. Thus did the central tension between machinery to distribute opportunity in America and America's legacy of sharecropper schooling slip into the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Little noticed at the time was the provision of the act which directed the Federal Office of Education to conduct a study of school desegregation. The study was done by ETS, was extremely well funded, and it issued in the Coleman Report. The report documented the magnitude of the black-white difference and its uniformity over the country, but made no policy recommendations. 
It came out in the summer of 1966, and that fall, Thomas Pettigrew and Daniel Patrick Moynihan convened 50 or more scholars and educators together at Harvard for the 66-67 academic year to study the report and make policy recommendations. Their bottom line was that America's policy had to be one of rescuing American students from failing schools, since the schools themselves couldn't be fixed. The families and children of the rubies of America were too dysfunctional. Thus did we get the circle of programs that have dominated public school reform for the past 35 years. Busing, upward bound, magnet schools, charter schools, ABC programs, and more recently, vouchers. Programs which finally tuned the process of rescuing and sorting students at earlier and earlier grade levels from America's sharecropper schools. In some districts, parents gather as though they were at a $20 million lottery draw to see which children get the lucky tickets to enter some flagship middle school. A national policy of Jim Crow was agreed upon by white Americans north and south after Reconstruction, and sharecropping was certainly a national economic institution. As such, it gave rise to sharecropper education, an educational system tied to minimal work, menial work, and low educational expectations. In his book, Slums and Suburbs, written 40 years ago, Conant describes our current condition. For nearly 100 years, our ancestors, north and south, east and west, accepted almost without protest the transformation of the status of the Negro from that of a slave into that of a member of a lower, quite separate caste. And as we now recognize so plainly, but so belatedly, a caste system finds its clearest manifestation in an educational system. The present situation is a consequence of a national policy, or rather, the lack of a national education policy, which has persisted for generations. As the 1990s began, Ruby was settling into her aging years, comfortable in a public housing project in Clarksdale. At night, she likes to stay up late working on the Bible quizzes that her pastor passes out to his church every week. Answering these questions has lent specificity to Ruby's understanding of scripture. Her favorite passage is from the book of Genesis where God speaks to Abraham and makes a great promise. As an everlasting possession, I will give you and your descendants the land in which you are now strangers. The presumption of innocence is not just a legal concept. In common sense terms, it depends on that generosity of spirit which sees the best, not the worst, of the stranger. I'm sure Robert Moses would be willing to entertain a question or two or three. 
Um, and so, are there some questions? Oh, come on. Always, it takes, takes what? Eretz, I knew I could count on you. <laughs> yeah. In, in terms of like a, sort of a practical program uh, that you sort of think would be appropriate. In terms of a practical program that you seem, that you think would be appropriate uh, to implement, uh, I mean, I'd be curious what that sort of program might look like. Uh, the algebra project is... Well, the algebra project is a program, but we're dealing with national policy here. And yeah. the issue is what are national policies that would affect the fixing of schools, right, as opposed to rescuing students. Well, clearly one national policy would that the country would decide to professionalize teaching and to pay teachers and to make sure that we train teachers and that we have schools everywhere that are going to have the teachers they need. Now, we don't have that as a national policy. We don't even have a national policy group discussing such a proposal. Um, I was at um, the only place I heard it, and it was like on an aside, Clinton had a group meet outside of Baltimore at the time when they were hounding him about whatever that, that lady was, right, her name. And so I actually was at that meeting, right? and it was uh, an educational summit meeting. And so at that meeting, somebody said something about budget and what would it mean at the budget level to think about uh, doing something about teacher salaries. And it was an offhand remark and it never went anywhere. Um, but the question would have to be, um, that would be one question. Now that's a question that, that's posed in a way that it's sort of race and class neutral. right? Um, but there clearly is an issue about uh, America has run sharecropper schools since the Civil War. And it's running them now. That school in Trenton where 60% of the kids drop out is a sharecropper school, right? And the moving around and everything, it's built in the sharecropper experience, right? Moving, Ruby moved and she moved and she moved and she moved, right? And was built right into sharecropping. At the end of every settle, there was the big shuffle, right? That this was the one way that sharecroppers could protest. They could get up and move and go to some other place and see if they could work with some other person. Right? So this, this is built into, we're looking at a hundred, more than a hundred years right, of this social conditioning. Right? So what, where in the country is some um, um, energy uh, to do anything about this. Well, the algebra project, we're just working on what we think of as the demand side of this problem, the same way as we worked in the 60s on the right to vote. That is, I don't think you can change the country around the central issues such as these without an enormous demand arising from the people most directly affected. You can get people advocating but the advocacy can't change the opposition. 
right? And so it's only, and we didn't get the right to vote until we also got the demand along with the advocacy. Right? And it was the introduction of the demand directly which weakened the opposition to the point where they couldn't hold up. Right? Well, I think the same thing is true about this uh, education issue in this country. Right? Um, the problem for us um, is that we're, we're up against time, right? Because we have this technology that's rushing in here. We've got a, you know, a million black people in jail. Um, we're, we're creating in our cities serfs, young people who leave, who can't access the economic arrangements, just the way the sharecroppers were serfs in the industrial arrangements. Right? So the young people who can't access the economic arrangements, who graduate or don't graduate, even if they graduate from high school, if they graduate from high school and they, they can't function so as to get a job that can support a family, then it's the same thing. Right? So we are creating this in, in our current situation, how long a window of time we have before it engulfs us. Right, and becomes really um, too much of a crisis for us to actually think about providing solutions for, I don't know. Right? But we do have some window of time uh, to try to do something about this. But we don't have a consciousness. Um, and we don't... The, the argument has gotten skewed off. I mean, affirmative action is a part of the policy of rescuing students. Right? And all of these policies, having, you've got a charter school now in Princeton, and I understand you now have a lottery for that charter school, and so what are you saying to people? That, um, you know, this is a really hard school to get into now, and you've got a very small chance of getting into it, and more and more people will want to get into it, and so this is a solution to education problems? Right? Well, it's all over the country. We've got prestige kindergartens. You know, we went from prestige universities in the 30s to prestige kindergartens. So are we going to actually look at saying, well, how do we put a floor under all of our children? Are these all our children? Right? That's part of our problem. The sharecroppers and their children weren't our children. Right? And so they were somebody else's children. Um, might as well have been from another country. So. Um, anyway, that's, I think, the direction, you know, it's, it's the national policy. How, how are you going to get uh, issues shaped? How are you going to have publics that are really talking about this issue? Because Conant and Chauncey and them, they did all of what they did establishing the SAT and the ETS in private. There was no national public discussion about do we want such an exam, right? Is this an exam that we need, right? Do we want to turn our universities into places uh, which are sorting primarily for the elite students? I mean, do we want to turn our educational system into this vast sorting machine? 
where the main job of the educational system is to sort students all the way up and figure out who is going to be able to get into Princeton? Is that what the purpose of our education? There was no public discussion about that, but that's what we've got. Right? Question here. It's a question about um, Teach for America and like that. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I mean, there is the issue of problems like Peace Corps. Vista, Teach for America. Right? Um, and there is an issue of volunteerism and uh, service. And you can't underestimate how important those issues are. Right? But there's a there's a tendency in the society to think that that's doing something about a major problem. It's doing something about providing college kids with a chance to do service. And some of them do it, some of them just get better bios. Right? So you have a better chance getting where you want to get if you got two years of service on your bio. And this is one way to get it. But it's no, it doesn't even begin to approach the problem that we're talking about here about how are we going to educate every child in this country. Right? And I don't want to get into the issues of you know, are the kids who are going to teach for America, what are they doing, and is what they're doing worthwhile? Um, and because I don't know. And I've had some experience with some who have turned up in the Delta, and some are good and some are bad. But um, that kind of volunteerism, um, You know, it, it doesn't begin to approach this problem. <laughs> Are there countries or areas that have solved this problem for better solutions? Um, which problem? Of educating all children. This is a, yeah, I mean, certainly the United States is at the forefront of, of this issue of offering opportunity to larger and larger groups of children. I don't know that there's any country in the world that offers as much education to as broad a swath of its population as the United States does. So on that score, the United States certainly has a lot to be proud of. Um, but the United States had slaves. I wasn't touting our progress. I was really looking for places we could look for guidance or more 
success. Well, I think the rest of the world is the the you get better education, but you you're educating more of an elite. Now, someone who knows about Japan might uh, say something, or China. I'm not sure, but um, you know. There was an elite, or there was a selection process going on about who is in these schools. Um, that's my understanding or my experience. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering what what's behind your question. What are you thinking of as a way in which it might? No, I was looking for where where could we look for some role models. We don't. We have not succeeded. I know we haven't succeeded even in Princeton. I'm one of the volunteers that's trying to bootstrap some of these kids. We're having a modest amount of success with a small number of students. I don't know what we as a community or we as a state or we as a country should be doing. Well, one thing we should be doing is we should be training teachers. I mean, Princeton is a university; it can train teachers, right? But it should—we should be training teachers. I mean, I—we were at the school uh, superintendents um, had a meeting, a luncheon there this afternoon, and one of the ladies who came up after me, because um, she was saying she she does work at um, these centers, but she was trained just graduated six months ago. And after our conversation, she was trying to think, well, how much math training did I actually get? I was trained to be an elementary school teacher. And she had good training, right? But she had very little math training, right? And so she began to think, what, in terms of subject matter, do I, if I wanted to teach these important concepts, what kind of training have I had to actually do that? Right? So there's a disconnect um, in the training of elementary school teachers and the subject matter that we are now requiring the students to master. And so one thing we can do is try to close that and make a connection there. Right? Now, that will take enormous resources and commitment. Right? And maybe a change in values, um, because we don't have a value system now which says that university professors who know the subject matter should attend in some meaningful way to making sure that our school systems are peopled with people who understand the subject matter. I will be unpopular and I'm monopolizing the conversation, but. I was educated as a teacher, did not teach until I came, became almost 60 years old. And I found my, one of my biggest problems was the unions, teacher unions, which prevented professional people, educated people from entering the profession who had the skills or knowledge, not necessarily the skills. And I don't know if, somebody, I don't know if anybody wants to talk to that question. But. Okay. Um, we're probably not going to answer the union question, but we do have a hand back over here. One of the things I found interesting about, uh, one of the things I found interesting about two phenomena in this country, both the uh, 
environmental movement and um, affirmative action is that both had severe penalties for failure to compliance in its early stages. And I, I feel that the key is what you talked about, a policy connected to education. But can we have a policy that's separate from a penalty uh, for failure to meet it? You want to, um, what do you mean a policy that's separate from a failure? I, I think I know. Can we have a policy that's separate from a penalty? penalty? for failure to meet those policies. So more like a reward system. Is that what you're getting at? Nope. Oh, no? Okay. Uh, I think one of the things uh, from my graduate education, I remember um, doing a report uh, around, uh, around education, and I believe it was a 1983 case. Uh, you might be familiar with it, uh, Mr. Moses. Uh, uh, Rodriguez uh, versus San Antonio. And uh, it was an effort on a part of a uh, Latino group of people to redress the grievances that they had with their sharecropper system in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, it went to the Supreme Court. And the, um, the finding was that even though uh, discrimination in the educational system there was unfair, wasn't illegal. And um, because it wasn't illegal, um, what they concluded was that education was not a fundamental right, it was a privilege. And so absent, absent from the solution to that problem was a penalty in San Antonio for the failure to educate those people. So it's not a reward, it's a penalty. We, uh, we, we uh, Mr. Moses just laid out a history of penalty that has not been necessarily directed at the rubies of the world, but all of us. And I think um, my question has to do with can we have a policy, a national education policy, that does not have a penalty, statutory penalty, for failure to meet those policies? Right. Okay. And I'm wondering if there are some people who want to talk to that question. If we could throw that to the floor. I don't have, you know, an answer to that. Um, but I'm interested in the, the comment about um, education as a privilege as opposed to a right. Um, and um, what, you, what you think about that and where you think that, that goes, yes, or anyone. I teach. Uh, and I've taught, interestingly enough, in different parts of the country. I've taught in the Midwest. I teach now in, in, in New York City. And one of the things that I find interesting about uh, the discussion of education when we talk about the fault lines, we, we are talking about people who are, have been historically uh, identified as 
problems. I have found in this discussion of privilege in education uh, rarely a public discussion about legacy students in universities and colleges that make space for them. We, we hear very little talk about the spaces that are made for athletes. We hear very little talk about the spaces that are made for other people who aren't part of this discussion about what the problem of education is in this country. And that's where I see those sites of privilege um, more, than, more than anything else. And I'd like more, um, more introduction of that element uh, into the discussion. I, and again, you, the, the, um, going back to the, uh, the record of, uh, uh, I, I forget the man's name. Chauncey. Chauncey. Going back to this record and finding that the only qualification for his education was his, uh, his lineage. Father. Yeah. Um, it's, it's something that we need to talk about more. Let me just comment. One of the things that came up at uh, our dinner discussion tonight was a discussion of the fact that that the system is is begins to be skewed at the lower end, at at the lower end of, of the age. Um, that you know, starting with with very young children, and the ways in which children begin to learn as as. Uh, Dr. Moses, as Dr. Janet Moses was saying, you know, it begins in utero, um, the kinds of experiences that, that people have and the kinds of expectations that are set. Um, so it's not just a question of, you know, who are legacy children by the time you get to, you know, the college admissions process. It's really a question of what kinds of, of expectations and opportunities are perceived to exist, you know, throughout um, and the extent to which we, we begin to equalize that, and I think you know, that Dr. Moses has, has suggested that one of the things we need to begin to do is to look at how we train teachers at every level and not just train them um, in um, teaching skills but also in subject area skills and the ways in which we look at teaching skills as being listening skills and you know, a whole host of, of things that aren't necessarily on the, on the table as things that we reward um, as a society and the way we pay people, the way we value people um, to, to raise our children. There are gender issues embedded in all of that and that, that history is a lot there um, and a lot to work on. All right, so be the last question. Okay, good. Okay. So, I think for what it's worth, I, I wanted to mention that, like, I mean, I'm, I'm not quite sure how, how we're supposed to determine what people's rights are versus what their privileges are, but generally it seems like uh, I mean, you're sort of dead on in terms of the fact that if there's a groundswell, if everyone really thinks we have a right to something, sort of we just pretend as if that's the case and go on from there. Uh, if people ask themselves whether they really think that education, the right to be part of what we call sort of modern thinking society, uh, is really a right that people have, uh, then I, I think you're 
what your, your comments were extremely on point um, in terms of the fact that, well, if it is a right, then failing to have some sort of organized way to make sure people uh, have that right uh, is just as egregious as failing to have a police force to protect your right to, you know, your private property and your physical, you know, and not getting not getting assaulted on the street. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess it, it seems like what uh, your sort of position on a national policy is very much the outgrowth of a view that says, look, this is just a right that people have. Uh, and I think if people agree with that view, it probably you know, falls, falls right into I think, the ballpark of the types of things that you were discussing. I think that's where we are.